Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging, maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. I want to take your attention this morning to 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. While you're turning there, I want to extend my gratitude to my pastor. Pastor Lopez, leadership of this church, the great saints of Calvary Tabernacle, I honor you. And when you're there, say amen. All right. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. The Lord said, well, take a heifer with you and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and he called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were all come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And this is what I want to pull out of our text this morning. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for the man looketh on the outward appearance but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him to pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. We love the King Jimmy English there. And Jesse made Shemada pass by and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. My, my. Samuel said to Jesse, Well, are here all thy children? And then he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. We will not sit down until he come hither. And he sent and he brought him in and 
Now, he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look on. In other words, my man was fine. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took that horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I want to speak to you this morning on the unexpected and the overlooked. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your presence in this house this morning. Lord, I ask you that you would have your way in this place. Lord, that chains be broken in this house today. Lord, that addictions be broken in this house today. Lord, that you would lead those that are searching to that living water, that you would send your people into the midst of those that are hurting and thirsty for more into the house of God. This morning, I pray, God, that you would have your way Lord, as we bind every spirit that would oppose the work of the Holy Ghost, now, Lord, loose liberty in this house this morning, God. Lord, I pray right now that you would prepare your people for this lesson in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Would you put your hands together? We serve a great God. We serve a great God. You may be seated. The place was Montgomery, Alabama. And the year was 1955 where these words were offered to Newsweek magazine by a young, courageous African-American. She said, I felt like a sojourner. She said, I got truth pushing down on one shoulder. And I got Harriet Tubman pushing down on the other shoulder, saying, sit down, girl. She said, I was glued to my seat. This young, courageous African-American who refused to give up her seat to a Caucasian individual who was expecting her to just immediately stand up and to find another seat. Now, Sadly, she was arrested, but the aftermath of her actions ultimately resulted in the court case that would end bus segregation in Montgomery and all across the state. She would forever be remembered as a hero in the civil rights movement. And now you may be thinking that this historical account was about the late and the Honorable Rosa Parks, right? But it wasn't. Some nine months before she faced what others feared and took a stand against a young 15-year-old, Claudette Colvin had actually done the exact same thing. Young Claudette had just completed a unit of study on great African-American leaders in America and asserted her constitutional right to retain the bus seat that she paid for as 
two police officers forcibly removed her from her bus seat among several verbal insults. Now, she didn't retaliate. She just simply kept her cool as she quoted from David's 23rd Psalm. It was this teen girl's act of courage that helped, at least in part, to open the door to Miss Park's actions some nine months later. And ultimately, for various reasons, the NAACP chose the Parks case to be the challenge to this segregationist practice. But never forget, it was an unknown youth, an overlooked 15-year-old that looked fear in the face and lit this fire of justice first. In this case, Claudette Colvin was the behind-the-scenes influence that ultimately helped write a moral blot in America's story. Now, it's often the overlooked and the unknown that play significant roles in our history and throughout the kingdom of God. Just ask David, the writer of that 23rd Psalm, who was overlooked by everyone around him as the second king of Israel was to be anointed from Jesse's household. No one in David's family, and I mean no one, thought that he would be the one to experience the anointing oil. Even Samuel, the man of God, had a hard time believing that God's mantle wouldn't fall on one of the more evident choices. But God chose David. Now it was time for David to put down that pen and stop writing them psalms and playing them flutes and square his shoulders as he was faced with Saul once again overlooking him in 1 Samuel chapter 17 in 33, where we find that Saul was declaring that you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him because you are just a youth. Sound familiar? Like our 15-year-old Claudette Colvin, they both squared their shoulders and embrace the fact that opposition demands a generation to remind the people, come on somebody, fear not. If God be for us, who can be against us? Calvary, when the enemy knows that he stands a chance to be defeated, learn to discern because he will immediately bait you with fear in an attempt to silence you. David discerned the trap. And he wouldn't take the bait discerning that if God puts you before a Goliath, he's already anointed you and given you dominion. Come on, to be a giant killer. If you believe that, put your hands together and love the Lord. Now was the moment for David to arise, level up, and confront the enemy as he reached into that shepherd's bag with five rocks, J-E-S-U-S, -S, and he clung to that spiritual rock. Yeah. 
David approached Goliath with confidence, discerning the enemy's weapons of warfare are carnal and no match. As he declared that you come to me with sword, spear, and shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David embraced that same spiritual rock, and he was coming in the name of his Redeemer. And that is what put him in position for victory and deliverance over the enemy. David knew that fear, hear me, that fear was a trap. And yielding to the enemy's bait wasn't an option as fear was the only thing standing between deliverance and victory for God's people. David's day of being overlooked and all of that were behind him as he took the stand. He was done with the enemy pushing and provoking him. He was done with the verbal insults as the enemy overlooked David's deliverance by the way of a revelation a declaration and the penetration of a rock that would soon sink into the enemy's forehead. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and 12 in the NIV, the writer penned for the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates that rock. It penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, and joint, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word penetrates. We find this parallel with a man by the name of Simon Peter, who was unexpected, overlooked, and accused of being Galilean, as they labeled him ignorant, and unlearned. And now it is noteworthy that Jesus calls Peter Cephas, meaning a stone. It was his revelation, declaration, and penetration that would once again provide a pathway to drop the enemy to his knees. And in Matthew 16 and 15, Jesus asked, his overlooked disciples a question. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Jesus' question remains relevant in 2023. Amen. Are we declaring Jesus to our community? He's asking our generation in 2023, who do you say that I am? Peter's revelation led to the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, God, manifest in flesh, amen. And he looked to Peter and he said, upon this rock, Peter, upon this revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Calvary Tabernacle, it is time to penetrate our community with the rock of salvation, kicking hell's gates and set the captive free. When we testify, hear me, 
that Jesus is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that revelation begins to penetrate. And that stone begins to sink in one's mind. False doctrine gets overrun by truth. For neither is there salvation. Come on, somebody. And any other. For there is no other name under heaven. Do you believe that? Given among men whereby we must be saved. Praise God. We're surrounded by people every day that are thirsting for something more. Kind of like me right now. <laughs> this city is desperate for people that know the way to that living water. They're looking for people to take them to a well where they'll never thirst again. And in 17, uh, Exodus 17 and 6, we find a foreshadow of the work on Calvary's cross as God spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb, and you shall smite the rock. There shall the water come out of it that my people may drink. That my people may drink. From the first man, Adam, God took a rib and from his side came his bride. The problem with Adam, when he was confronted by the enemy, God expected him to exercise dominion and to declare God's word, but instead, his silence opened the door for the enemy's voice to cause deception and division. One man brought sin into the world, and one man took it out, the second man, Adam, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was smitten in his side, out of his side came his bride. Praise God from the water and the blood. Aren't you thankful to be washed in the water this morning and cleansed in the blood? Glory to God. And Paul would pen under inspiration in 1 Corinthians 10 and 4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. A foreshadow of the smitten Christ. The same God that told Moses, smite the rock that the people may drink is the same God that would declare through the smitten Christ, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. But how will they if they don't have anyone to bring them to that living water? Like Adam Silence can cause everyone that I walk past from getting to Calvary's cross. That's what happens when our hands get heavy. We lose the bandwidth to stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zone, and in turn, it affects our support to get behind the mission. We see this with Moses, who was overlooked 
and unexpected to be the voice of God's people and immediately began to make excuse why he wasn't good enough. He said, I am not adequate. Who am I? And we all know the famous stuttering of speech as he said that I am no good with words. We see in Exodus 4 and 1 that Moses answered and said, Behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. We see this as he smote the rock and that living water was available, but yet God's people got focused on temptation and strife because the enemy got them to doubt that God was fighting for you. Exodus 17 and 7, we see Moses. He called the name of the place where he smote the rock, Massah, which means temptation, and Meribah, which means strife because of the chiding, the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? As verse 11 and 12 tells us that the enemy began to fight with God's people. And when Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But when he laid down his hand, the enemy would prevail because his hands, verse 12 tells us, got heavy. It's never God's will, Calvary, and I know we know this, for pastor and for the leadership of our church to bear the burden for a city alone. That's why Aaron and her took a stone, that rock, that Acts 2.38 message, if you will. They got behind their leader with the rock and they put it under him. They got behind him with the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. They held up his hands the enemy, and we talked a little bit about it this morning in pre-service meeting, the enemy hates the support and the unity that Calvary Tabernacle is experienced right now behind Pastor and his vision to reach this city. So look out, church, for division and strife because all is division and strife offers is a problem to every solution. Instead of assaulting someone, find someone being the salt of the earth, and lead that person to that everlasting water of Calvary's cross. God has called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are living stones set to diffract and to show forth the light of the gospel in every direction of this city. And in 1 Peter 2 and 9, Peter would pen under inspiration, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we should show forth. Everybody shout, show forth. Show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The inspired writer Cephas Simon Peter, which is by interpretation a stone, penned the words to show forth means to proclaim, to spread out, 
or to diffract. A diffraction is defined as the process by which a beam of light goes forth and spreads out in every direction as a result of a passing through the aperture of a stone. And it's highly noteworthy to point out that God chose specific stones to be used in the garment of the high priest. Specific stones. Nudge your neighbor and tell him you're a royal priesthood. These stones, these stones had narrow apertures that absorbed the light and in turn dispersed that light in every direction of Indianapolis. Upon this rock, I will build my church. We may be a house of unexpected and overlooked by society, but aren't you thankful we're chosen? A chosen generation. For such a time as this, destined to diffract that light of repentance, Jesus' name, baptism, and in the infilling of the Holy Ghost in every direction of our city. It's time for the church to get outside these four walls and be the church, come on, to be a sermon, to be an altar call, to pray people through the Holy Ghost outside these four walls. Why? Because we carry these dynamics wherever we go. Put your hands together and love the Lord. We're a royal priesthood, living stones of the glory of God that are to show forth the light of the glorious gospel, the Acts 2.38 message that will drop the enemy to his knees. Come on, somebody. Calvary Tabernacle is a house of mercy and the light of Indianapolis. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. But if our gospel be hid, but if our hands get heavy, the potential is there to be lost. In John 5, as I hasten, we find an unnamed man, or as John would pen, that he was a certain man who was also considered an outcast by society. This certain man found himself overlooked and with no one to help him near the side of a pool called Bethesda, which is in the Hebrew tongue, meaning the house of mercy. He was desperate and in need of a miracle from an infirmity of 38 years. But in due season, church, and at the appointed time, his desperation got the attention of Jesus while anticipating the moving of the water. Now, to see through the lens of this couched evangelism principle, I will need to tie in Revelation 17, 15, where John would pen that the water, where he was by the water, the water which you saw our people, Symbolic of people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This man 
was in the house of mercy, the church, and in desperate need, waiting for this body of water to move. And that was the dilemma. He needed someone to help him to step into the miraculous. Jesus, knowing this, who typically would have people approaching him with their needs, flipped the script and initiated dialogue by asking this uncertain man the $64,000 question when he asked, Wilt thou be made whole? And in John 5 and 7, we'll call him the impotent man. He was important to Jesus. The impotent man, in case that offends someone, answered him, Sir, I don't have anybody. I don't have no man. When the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps in before me. This overlooked man had no one to help him, and he wasn't alone as others waited for this body of water for God's people to make a move. Come on, for an apostolic voice to say, I know the way. Come on, Calvary, people are desperate, waiting to be led to the house of mercy and step into the miraculous to be healed of their addictions. Come on, healed of their pain, waiting to be whole and set free. Come on, they're looking for someone seasoned enough to say, follow me. As they stand in the gap to declare, behold, to the bound, the bruised, and the broken, take up thy bed, arise, and walk. So often, it's the unexpected and the overlooked that learn how to teach even us something from the bound, bruised, and broken, but that's exactly where you will find the pathway to reaching a community. Through desperation. We can learn from some of the most unexpected sources to accomplish the will of God. We find ourselves reaching them when we arrive at a place where nothing else matters. Desperation is simply defined as action taken of extreme urgency. A response to a major crisis. Calvary, we have a major crisis. When every 1.86 seconds, someone is slipping into eternity and slipping hell wide open. We have a major crisis when you potentially find that the drug addict can be more desperate than the disciple. A drug addict's environment is full of desperation. And anyone that is armed with desperation is the most dangerous person in the community. You'll find people everywhere in the most unexpected seasons of their life armed with desperation. I wonder this morning what would happen if we would continue to push and be desperate leave comfort zones, and be the most dangerous church against the gates of hell in our community. Come on, it's time to get dangerous and convert a family. It's time to chase humanity in this city with everything that we got. Come on, the church and next chased 
humanity with everything what they had, and they turned their city upside down. Praise God. Now, I want to take a turn as I hasten and take a look at the most unexpected and overlooked person who was penned among the champions of the faith from the writer of Hebrews 11. And in order to discuss this unexpected individual, I will also circle back around through this story to uh, may perhaps maybe shed some more angle on the reason why I believe that David chose a rock to defeat his enemy. I personally believe that it was from the impact of a memorial that was built many years prior after a miracle at Jordan's River. A memorial built of 12 stones continued to impact generations that were desperate to reject fear, conquer the enemy, and pursue the land. They were to be strong and of good courage as they confronted their enemies to possess the land that God had promised them. And in Joshua chapter 2, we find him sending two spies on a missions trip. Unlike the spies from Numbers 13, where 10 of the 12 returned from Canaan full of fear instead of faith, Joshua understood the culprit behind fear. When 12 spies were sent to the land of Canaan, 10 were spectating and were full of excuses why they couldn't conquer the land and why this wouldn't work. And there was these two, though, that were sent. They were sent participating as messengers on a missions trip. They saw someone not as they were, but as to who they could become as they entered into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there as the enemy plotted to overtake them. But it was too late because Rahab went to rehab. She quickly sobered up from a revelation, praise God, from a revelation of the one true God and hid those messengers as she testified in Joshua 2 and 11. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, and neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, Calvary Tabernacle, because of your testimony upon this rock, upon this revelation that we have, that our God is one God. Verses 13 through 15, Rahab boldly stood in the gap for the deliverance of her family, declaring that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the man answered, our life for yours if you utter not this business. We must be about our father's business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly with you. Then she let them down, and I love this, through uh, a window it was a cord through a window for her house was upon the town wall. She dwelt upon the wall. Church, that's what desperation looks like when your life is up against the wall and you got nowhere else to turn. 
Rahab took advantage of a small window of opportunity, receiving mercy and deliverance. She used a crimson-colored lifeline and a revelation of the one true God. The New Testament writer of Hebrews was so impacted that he placed her among the champions of the faith, penning that the harlot Rahab didn't perish with them that believed not. Why? Because two witnesses were willing to look past one's present condition and take a risk. Come on, Calvary. Confronting tradition to conform a family and pluck them like a brand from the fire. Praise God. Praise God. Fear disarms faith from God's people. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. But as long as God's people were willing to pursue, Joshua could declare that you shall know that the living God is among you and without fail, drive out the enemy. And God charged Joshua, command the priests, remind your neighbor that you're a royal priesthood. Command the priests that bear the ark. Now the ark represents the word of God and it was to be brought into the water before it would roll back. They couldn't just sit by that edge idle and wait spectating for God to make a move. If we're going to see revival, the kind of revival that I believe, I'm thankful for the revival that we're having, but I believe that God really wants to open some floodgates in Indianapolis if we're going to see that, then we that carry the Acts 2.38 message are going to have to take that word and take a risk and step into a different environment. Remember Revelation 17.15, the waters which you saw where the harlot or the whore sitteth. Come on, the Rahabs are waiting for us to, that carry the Acts 2.38 message, somebody, to bring it to people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. For there to be a miracle at Jordan's river and a conquering of Canaan, 12 men, one from each tribe, had to take a rock and pursue. Why? So future generations could glean from a memorial and declare there's no rock like our God. Future generations would testify that these are the stones that the waters of Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the Lord as a memorial of the pursuit of the conquering the enemy and the land. And in closing, Joshua 5, 8 through 9, it came to pass when they were done circumcising. Everybody say circumcising. Circumcising the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were made whole. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach from Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal till this day. Rolled away is a role play on Gilgal, which generally refers to a rolling away of a stone. A pursuit led to an encounter with the most unexpected and overlooked woman. And now, for all the north takers, pursuit led to Passover, which led to circumcision, which led to an entry into the promised land. All tied together to roll away the stone of reproach in Egypt. Aren't you thankful for that rope? That reproach that was rolled away off your life. Praise God. Let's stand together. Glory to God. Let's, let's pray. I just want to pray before we dismiss. Father, just ask you that this word find lodging today and that you would help us, Lord. Except you build the house, we labor in vain that build it, God. We need you, God. We need your spirit for boldness. We need your spirit for wisdom. 
that Solomon asked you so that we can know how to go out and in before the people of this city. Oh, praise God. Praise God.